0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lehmiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Carol Hooven, who is a lecturer and co-director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. She earned her PhD at Harvard studying sex differences and testosterone and she has taught there ever since. She has also received numerous teaching awards, and she is the author of the new book, *T: The Story of Testosterone, The Hormone That Dominates and Divides Us. In this episode, we're going to be talking all about the science of testosterone. Some of the topics we'll explore include the origin of sex differences, so to what extent are they a product of hormones in biology versus socialization. We'll also discuss the role of testosterone in sexual behavior and aggression, the link between testosterone and sexual orientation, and what transgender persons who undergo hormonal transitions can teach us about how testosterone affects us. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Carol, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Hi, Justin. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining me. So we have something in common, which is that we both taught at Harvard. And back in the day, I used to teach a human sexuality course there in the psychology department. And the students were incredible. But something I noticed, having taught this course at several universities with very different student populations, is that the great equalizer between students was their similar lack of knowledge about sex, right? No matter where I taught this course, I'd get a lot of the same questions from students. I'd hear a lot of the same myths and misconceptions. And I think that really speaks to the pervasive lack of sex education. It's something that most of us just never receive enough information about. So I want to hear a little bit about your teaching experience at Harvard. You teach about sex-related issues and tackle a lot of controversial subjects in your courses. And I'm curious to hear what that's been like for you and how you navigate talking about controversial issues in the classroom, right? So how do you begin a conversation about a topic where people kind of already have their minds made up, but the science and data say something different, And I think this is a good place to begin our conversation because a lot of people listening might have ideas about testosterone that you might challenge a little bit based on what the research and data say.
1: That's great. I love that question. And I just want to start out by saying the only reason I remember your name and your course is because it was wildly popular, students <laughs> raved about it. I mean, I know who you are a little bit from your podcast and your work, of course, but I wouldn't have remembered that course. There's so many different courses taught at Harvard, but students loved your teaching and the course. So I, I didn't forget about that because it kind of competed with my <laughs> class a little <laughs> bit. And I also love that you're starting with this question about people... Students in particular, but I think this really applies to a lot of different kinds of people coming to a subject with preconceived notions about how it works. And also, yeah, what you teach about, what I teach about is controversial in many respects and becoming more controversial mm, seemingly by the day now or the minute or even the second. And, you know, I've only taught at Harvard, so I don't know what students at other institutions are like, but it does seem to, first of all, you know, overall, they're very bright. They're very motivated, but I think people of, you know, especially taking me at that age, I had a lot of strong opinions. I felt very differently about a lot of subjects that I, than I do now. And it's a time when I think people are really working hard to figure out how the world works, what their place in it is, what their values should be. And I love when they come in with ideas about how things are that are different from mine and when they're passionate about their ideas. I love, I'm a really passionate person. I'm sure, well, yes, I can be annoying in my passion sometimes because maybe I can be a little bit pushy, but I really enjoy engaging about ideas and listening to evidence. And so when I encounter students who might disagree with me or might even say, Hey, I found that term offensive. I want all of my students to bring their ideas into the classroom and I do my best to, you know, and I always try to get better at this. I have a long way to go. I think we all do. I want to try to create an environment where people, I'm hesitant to use the word safe, but do feel safe, not from offense. I'm of the view that it's okay sometimes, many times to be offended, but what I want to happen in the classroom is for people to learn to respect each other's viewpoints even when they disagree vehemently even when something that is said feels offensive this is what i went through as a grad student i can talk about that experience later but that helped me become a scientist to realize you know i can feel offended and i can even feel upset and angry about what someone says or what some scientist says in a paper about the like evolution of rape or something but that doesn't really bear on whether the hypothesis is true. I can learn to recognize my feelings, really try to put them to the side and engage with the ideas and the evidence. So, I am very open. I share my stories of making mistakes and being super vulnerable, you know, with my students and they know that I'm a vulnerable passionate person and I think that helps to create an atmosphere where people do feel comfortable challenging me and challenging ideas. And we sort of work together. I do feel like we're going on a journey together to learn about the world and bring in evidence and learn how to analyze it. And I'm so impressed with them. And I just feel really lucky to have the opportunity to, you know, play this even a small role in shaping how they think about the world and helping them learn about the tools of science. Yeah,
0: I love all of that. And I share a pretty similar philosophy. And, you know, something else that I've done over the years is learn to change the way that I talk about a lot of issues in my classes to to make them open and accessible to as diverse an audience as possible. And to also help people to recognize that, you know, sometimes the results of scientific research are not politically convenient, or they don't line up with politically correct ideals. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong. And that doesn't mean that they should be discarded. We still have to engage with them. And we have to find a way to look at the science and the data without just immediately ignoring everything that doesn't fit with our preconceived notions about the world. Because one of the values, I think core values of being a scientist is you have to be open to changing your mind and open to exploring the evidence. And Yeah. So that's just something I try to do with my students and I I love your philosophy there. And I think there's a reason why your course is one of the tried and true (laughs) at Harvard, you know, why it's been called that by the Harvard Crimson, because, you know, you're, you're approaching this in a way that you're really invested in helping to give your students the best educational experience possible.
1: I'm trying, and I love what you just said, and I love your philosophy too. I think it's exactly right. And it is this balance between openness and sensitivity and, a desire to learn the tools of science and logical analysis, but at the same time, really listening and being open to students, especially students who come from, you know, so many different kinds of environments and backgrounds and have different identities and to bring all of that in, in a way that people feel that they can talk about how all of those factors shape their views. I think that's really important.
0: Absolutely. So you've been studying hormones for a long time and your new book is all about testosterone. So tell us a little bit about the backstory here. What drew you to studying hormones in the first place? And also I should say, I I love your book and the stories you tell in there about your early research and career studying hormones and collecting urine samples from chimps as they're peeing out of trees. Like what a fascinating <laughs> career you've had. So how did that all begin?
1: Yeah, I mean we only have like 45 minutes. So I don't want to go too <laughs> deep. Short but I do think I I do think that given what I just said and talking about how people's background and experience shape their views, I was not somebody who could have ever gotten into Harvard as an undergrad. In fact, I didn't even have a diploma in my folder when I walked in my high school graduation. I skipped my classes. I had no, basically no parental oversight. I stayed out all night. I was drinking. I was doing drugs. Like, I was out of control. And I, unsurprisingly, got into, uh, had some trouble with sexual assault. And I think... I didn't really put the pieces together. I think there are a lot of other influences, but I do think that somehow those early experiences and my trying to come to terms with all of that did make me more curious than I might have been otherwise. And I think everybody's curious about the opposite sex to some degree because they're generally pretty different. Um, But I do think that experience might have... uh, Caused me to just feel a little bit more intense about that drive to understand human nature and also to feel a sense of control. You know, I'm emotional. I was out of control, I think, as a definitely as an adolescent. And I think so, I was drawn to learn a system, which is science, that can help me feel that I do have the tools that give me some control where I can say, okay, these are my emotions. This is where I feel out of control. Here's where I can get some answers. And here's a structure I can use to get some answers. So that is what ultimately after the 10 years uh, that I took to kind of get myself together, I would say after college and, you know, I traveled and I read books and I did a lot of different things and then applied to Harvard, got rejected. And then went up to the department and harassed a bunch of people, particularly Richard Wrangham, who ran uh, and still is basically in charge of the Kibale chimpanzee project in Uganda. And I had decided I wanted to research human behavior from an evolutionary point of view to really understand the evolutionary forces that shaped us. So it wasn't at that point aggression per se, but then I got offered this job to learn to do some research on wild animals. So I was studying chimpanzees in the rainforest in Western Uganda. I was supposed to do that for a year. And I was also running the field site. So I ended up getting evacuated from the area after eight months because not only was there a lot of violence and aggression among the chimps, which was fascinating and somewhat disturbing sometimes, but there was a lot of uh, really very brutal violence Uh, going on in the region of, uh, that I was in in Africa at that time. So yeah, in Uganda, what I saw when I was with the chimps every day is what pretty much anybody notices who spends time with uh, wild chimps is that they're a lot like us, you know, everybody notices that, but one thing that is undeniable is that the males behave in very different ways from the females in ways that parallel to some degree, the sex differences that we see in humans in terms of levels of physical aggression in the males are much, 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 much higher than in females. Females, I I never saw any physical aggression that was female on female. However, it does occur and sometimes with great intensity. So it's just, I didn't see that, but the female chimps are certainly capable of high levels of aggression. And then the females are just more peaceful and nurturing. And you know, I'm not making that up that those are facts. And that's interesting given they have zero human culture, right? So those parallels really sparked my interest in understanding the evolutionary and ultimately hormonal origins of sex differences in humans. Because Mm -hmm. first I thought I would get into genetics. And then when I learned about testosterone, and then I just started, you know, my brain started exploding because testosterone acts in the nervous system and on the body, you know, to shape the body in masculine ways, but also to shape the brain in ways that allow them to use their bodies. For higher levels of aggression, you know, on a, on average, on average, on average. So, just keep right. thinking on average after any everything I say.
0: Yes, there are always individual differences, and I brought that yes. point up I, when I had David Buss on the podcast recently. You know, we're talking right. about a lot of sex differences, and you know how these are all average. There is always individual variation, and we're not talking about universals. So, I think that's that's the right. Point to for
1: me. any complex behavior that yes. is that is the case. There's. It's not that all males are one way and all females are another way. They're overlapping bell curves, and you can't make assumptions about any individual. These are large patterns that we're trying to understand.
0: Yeah. Now, to go back to what you were saying, I think it leads nicely into my next question, which was going to be about a lot of the debates we hear about sex differences, differences between men and women. There are a lot of people who argue that everybody's sort of a blank slate and that any differences between the sexes are not a function of biology and hormones. They're due to differences in socialization and culture, right? So how do you respond to assertions like that? You know, to what extent do you see sex differences as primarily being a function of hormonal factors versus socialization factors? And I know the answer is going to be some of both, right? But what what's the truth there? Like, how do we, how should we think about this?
1: Okay. I guess I'm just going to do something a little different here, which is ask a question. So if you see a little five-year-old, if you're in a restaurant, you see a five-year-old kid start running around the restaurant screaming his or her head off. Would you say that's due to the kid's biology or it's due to the culture?
0: (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of people would look at that and would say it's, uh, you know, a function of the parenting or something, you know, the the socialization or something that happens there. I know others would look at that and say, oh, well, you know, maybe there's a temperament issue. You know, I I don't know (laughs) what the answer is other than that, you know, I, I hear people who immediately leap to very different conclusions that you know some people just have a tendency to say it's all biology other people have a tendency to say it's all socialization and I, I i don't know that either one of the extreme perspectives is right
1: yeah so that's obviously correct and we i think but this i like this example i'm not sure how effective it is but i like it because everyone can agree that a 5 year old is predisposed relative to a 50 year old to engage in that kind of behavior. You know, if, a, if a, you or I went to a restaurant and started doing something like that, people would think that we were mentally unstable, right? So it, it, that would be, you know, a bizarre thing for us to do. However, the developmental biology of the five-year-old means that their frontal cortex isn't you know, as developed as ours and they have a more difficult time inhibiting their behavior. So that's a biological predisposition that may or may not be expressed. The extent to which that predisposition is expressed is almost 100% dependent on the culture dependent on the parenting, on the religion, on the restaurant, on the country. You know, there's so many different factors. Of course, there's some genetics also that are, are going to influence that behavior. However, think of the tremendous influence of the culture. There's some culture that is just really not going to happen because if the kid does that, the parents are going to, who, who knows what they're going to do, but there will be severe repercussions. It's just like not tolerated. So I would say the same thing about sexual assault. not that I don't want to compare it to a, you know, necessarily like it's not obviously like a five-year-old running rampant in a restaurant. It's much more serious. But the point I'm trying to make is all of these complex behaviors, when, especially when we see patterns of behavior, like a five-year-old is a gazillion times more likely to do this than a 50-year-old because biologically they're different. But it doesn't mean that the behavior has to be Expressed. I mean, there's a predisposition, right? That is in the biology. That's in the genes somehow. You know, it's developmental. And I would definitely, in fact, I do definitely argue that males relative to females have some sort of similar predispositions. And we can think about it in a similar way where the bar to express certain behaviors like physical aggression, right, is much lower. But the the expression of the behavior from the inclination for the behavior is almost entirely dependent on the culture. Okay. So it doesn't, so the point is culture is crucial. It's almost everything in some sense, but that doesn't mean just because culture is, is so important and influential that in no way means that biology is not. So you can see with the example of the kid, like, no, it's an interaction. And the reason that we see everywhere around the world that five-year-olds are at much higher rates gonna act out in restaurants than 50-year-olds, that pattern is never gonna change. You'll never see anywhere that a 50-year-old is more likely to do that than a five-year-old. Why? Because of biology, right? But the extent of the expression of that behavior is gonna vary culturally. So it's, it's frustrating that this, argument is still going on and that so many people resist biological explanations for human behavior because they appear to legitimize certain behaviors or because people think that that means it's biological determinism you know there's nothing we can do about it both of those things are totally wrong that kid just because he or she runs around the restaurant that and it might be natural no it's still wrong you're not allowed and when we're going to figure out how to reduce the frequency of that behavior. It's wrong. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's right. And also, of course, the behavior is not immutable. So both of the factors that I think really contribute to resistance to biological explanations of behavior, I think those are errors of logic. And we need to do a better job in science education and just education in general about the implications of biology on our behavior. But instead, I think we're going the wrong direction. We're sort of altering the facts in ways that I don't think are helpful. We're sort of diluting the power of of science and biology to make certain points. And I don't think that's helping anybody.
0: Yeah. And I, I think you explain that all really well. And it reminds me of some of the things I was talking about on the episode with David Buss, you know, especially when we're talking about things through an evolutionary perspective and how certain people might have predispositions toward certain behaviors, and some of those behaviors might be socially undesirable. That's not a justification for those behaviors. It doesn't make it right, right? And another way to think about it is that evolution doesn't necessarily select for what is socially or morally desirable, you know? And if
1: Definitely not.
0: (laughs) If certain traits help or assist in reproduction, they're more likely to get passed on, even if those are traits that we don't value as a culture or society. And so I think that's just yet another way of of thinking about some of this. So let's talk about how testosterone affects us. And I'm curious in particular about the link between testosterone and sexual behavior, right? And there's a lot of research, and you discuss some of this in your book, showing that men and women are different on average in terms of sexual desires and behaviors. So for example, men tend to masturbate at much higher rates than women, and they tend to desire a greater number of sexual partners over the course of their lives. They have more openness to casual sex on average. So to what extent can we say that testosterone drives these differences in sexual psychology?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. So I think the really robust evidence, in humans anyway, is the observation of the differences. I think those are real differences they're cross culturally consistent but again i do i just think it's still really important to because it's so easy to generalize from those differences and uh, think that all males are you know way more horny than all females and that we should expect males to behave in that way and we should expect you know females to be more coy i just again think think it's so important to remind everybody that there are plenty of super horny women who want to have a lot of sex partners and a lot of men who just want intimacy and love and romance and monogamy. That's just important to sort of keep reminding people of that variation. These are patterns that we see on average that need explanation. And so I think in humans that we can agree that yes, men want more sexual variety. They report, self-report higher levels of libido, but then there's some other observational evidence that kind of corroborates those reports, which can be biased, and women can also be biased in, in the number of sexual partners that they report having and wanting. And that bias can be because of social pressures. But we do have a lot of other data on, you know, like who goes to see prostitutes, who masturbates during a Zoom call on camera, um, et cetera. You don't really see a woman doing that like between zoom calls. That would be weird. I mean, it is weird anyway, but not totally shocking. Right. Unfortunately. So we have that evidence, but then the question is, okay, to what extent is this due to testosterone? So there are a couple different ways of getting at that. There are a few different ways. And one that I found extremely powerful that I covered in my book was, first of all, I interviewed transgender people, about their experiences on male typical levels of testosterone and female typical levels and how their sexual natures and desires changed. So to me, that's very powerful evidence because these changes that are in the direction you would predict occurred prior to changes in their physicality, you know, prior to having the voice lowered or beard grow or muscles grow, which would send social signals, of course, that can then have an effect on one's psychology. So, and I can talk about what those changes were more specifically, but that's one sort of set of evidence. Another is, especially in men who, for whatever reason, have to have their testosterone blocked, maybe for medical treatment for prostate cancer, or who have some other disorder where they're, they become hypogonadal and their testosterone really goes down. And also there are cases where women produce a lot of testosterone or, or take a lot of testosterone and maybe they're not trans, but you know, all of this evidence strongly suggests that it is testosterone, the actions of testosterone in the brain. And of course the complicated social effects here too. However, People who go from female to male levels have their minds blown about what it must be like to go through the world as a man, but really a young man in puberty, because that's what happens when you first start taking testosterone. The people I talked to and the research that I read, and you probably know even more about this than I do, so correct me if I get anything wrong here while there is lots of variation in outcomes, the strongest effect behaviorally that I found is sex drive. That people who lived as women and then started living as men with high male levels of testosterone described really an intense increase in sexual desire that felt urgent in a way that was novel to them. And then there's this thing about objectifying the target of their sexual desire, which frankly was surprising to me, which probably shouldn't have been, but it was disturbing to some of the people who had lived as women, resented, really resented being objectified, and then started feeling the pull themselves to see the target of their sexual attraction in a more objectifying, um, light, you know, not every, this didn't happen for everyone and it was more or less intense and, and people, and it did fade with, with time, but I found that absolutely fascinating. The experience of orgasm changed and this, I did not know the details of this, that on male levels of testosterone, and you can tell, you can, you know, feel free to contribute here. Um, but the, orgasm people who had had sort of i'll just say female orgasms and then something more like a male orgasm said that on male levels of testosterone they went from having orgasms that were they described as more full body longer lasting like washing over them and then sort of luxuriating in the afterglow to something much shorter temporally more intense at the peak and more concentrated in the genitals. And that's interesting because I don't know that men and women really get that there are differences like this. And I don't know, you know, this, I did see this substantiated to some extent in the literature. There's not a ton of literature on it, but it was confirmed by what people told me. And I found that really interesting. And so then you can just reverse all of that for people who were living as men and then block their testosterone and take estrogen and there you also have changes in emotionality ability to access a wider deeper range of emotions to be in touch with one's emotions to express vulnerable emotions like fear anxiety and then crying as opposed to feeling it more difficult to be in touch with emotions except for anger Anger was didn't increase, but it seemed to be retained when other emotions were kind of dampened in the going from low to high testosterone.
0: That is all fascinating, <laughs> and I'm not wasn't familiar with the orgasm research part okay. of that, so I'm going to have to go do a deep dive into that because now I'm super curious about it. It, it makes me think of a study I read. This came out quite a while ago, but they had men and women describe their orgasmic experiences and write narratives of them. And then they had a panel of psychologists try and determine whether they were written by men or women.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: They actually could not predict which ones were the male versus female descriptions. So so that's interesting. And it could be that maybe they had a limited sample and, and you know didn't have enough diversity in it to to really capture that. And it could also be that, you know, the orgasmic experience if, you know, you were sampling, say, college women and asking them to describe it might be different right. than if you were surveying older women. So I think a, a follow-up study might be in order there at some point. But I am I'm fascinated by that. And just one yeah just a very quick question based on what you were saying so it sounds like testosterone seems to have similar effects in both men and women in terms of how it affects sexual behavior right so it when you have more of it you tend to have more libido more desire to masturbate and so forth
1: so no so not r- no i okay. mean not in so far as um the uh, the big effects among um men or or trans men sorry i should say natal males or trans men are going from female to male levels. But if you look within men and you try to predict who has the highest libido, their testosterone level, if it's in the normal range, isn't going to be predictive. But you already know that, sorry. So, But within women, if you go slightly out of the female range on the high end, then you do see an effect But at that point, it's so high that she's starting to develop some male features like acne or growing a little bit of a beard or male pattern baldness. And that's even before she reaches into the bottom end of the male range. So, yeah, it's, so there's really is not a dose response effect. And, and I was actually surprised to see a lack of support for the idea that testosterone is really important for female sexuality. Mm So that, you know, I really dug into that. And maybe you have other information there, but I that was surprising to me once I did a deep dive into that literature. Yeah, I'd love to hear if you have any other perspectives on female sexuality and testosterone.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a literature that is very underdeveloped. Yes, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things where, When we start looking at hormones and sexual behavior, there are so many studies that are inconsistent and so many that are based on really small samples. And I often have a hard time knowing what to make of it. And, you know, part of that is because it's very expensive to do this kind of research and to get funding for it.
1: And the pharmaceutical companies might have an interest. That's also problematic. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a whole other podcast. But what you said there, I think, is a really important point that when you're looking at people within the normal range for testosterone that higher versus lower is not really predictive of of sexual behavior, which
1: I think... Or aggressive behavior.
0: Yeah. And so it's really only when you start getting more at the extremes or getting outside of that normal curve where you start to see effects. Yeah. So we have much more to discuss, including how testosterone is related to sexual orientation. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has target-zone technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicone, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over ten dollars. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at Promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is Harvard professor Carol Hooven, author of the new book Tea, which is all about the story of testosterone. So a follow-up question I wanted to ask you about, you know, how testosterone affects us is that I hear a lot of people today talking about taking testosterone replacement therapy, right? Because a lot of people are under the impression that they need more testosterone because they're having some problem in their sex life or, or something else. They want to get their their libido or their groove back. What are your thoughts on testosterone replacement and when and for whom is that necessary? <sighs>
1: So I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, well, I have a doctorate, you know, but I'm not a medical doctor. So it is important, you know, if if you're having issues that you go get checked out by your doctor. What I learned is that... Yes, there's a huge industry here. There is a ton of marketing that happens that we are not even aware of all the ways that the pharmaceutical companies are getting to us. They do not have to reveal themselves in newspaper articles on TV and your know, your social media. So they're I think really influencing a bunch of di- a lot of conversations and perceptions about hormones and hormone supplementation and even lifelong dependence on hormones and and some situations. And so a lot of people, yes, it's true that taking testosterone can give you an immediate, you know, relatively immediate uh, boost to your mood. It can give you energy. It can sometimes make a difference in your libido or sexual behavior. But overall, what seems to be the case is that a lot of people who are experiencing lethargy and lack of libido, et cetera, have other health problems. And what, you know, is ideal is that rather than taking a drug, they would try to get healthy. And I know, you know, it's just so easy when drugs are available to want to take a drug is sort of the easy way, but really being in good health and, you know, losing weight, getting treatment for diabetes, stopping smoking, not drinking so much, et cetera, exercising a lot. All of these things, I think, are the best predictor. You, again, here probably know more than I do, but the best predictor of a healthy sex life. And if you want to gain muscle, you should be lifting weights. Unless, you know, if your testosterone is low for your age, it will be harder to put on muscle, and then maybe there is an issue. But sometimes testosterone is low because of these other health problems, especially obesity causes low testosterone because fat cells contain the enzyme aromatase, which converts testosterone into estrogen. All estrogen comes from testosterone, and people who have a lot of extra fat tend to have a lower testosterone-estrogen ratio, which can have effects, physical and psychological. So I guess I'm fairly suspicious about a lot of the claims about the value of testosterone supplementation, it's obvious that it grows muscle, you know? So, but again, you have to be extremely cautious there. Yes. It's effective in bodybuilding and muscle growth, but for a lot of other areas, especially sex, I think it's, you should be skeptical of the claims and you should get healthy first. And I don't, again, I don't see like in women who have low sex drive, there's zero relationship in reproductive age women between testosterone level and sex drive. And I didn't see evidence that for women, reproductive age women, that testosterone supplementation makes much of a difference. Estrogen is very important for libido in women. People don't really recognize that in non-human animals, especially seasonal breeders. Estrogen can turn somebody who is 100% uninterested in sex and males to an animal that looks like a, you know, crazy, sex-crazed female. So estrogen is very important. There are cases of people who have, like, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, who for all intents and purposes are women who only have estrogen, basically cannot make use of their testosterone, from what I can determine from my conversations and from the literature is that these women have normal sex drives and uh, normal sexual function for the most part. So that there's zero androgen action in these people. Mm-hmm. There may be some value in andropause, you know, which is the sort of male equivalent of menopause, except you're not falling off a cliff. It's like you're sliding down a gentle slope. That's the you know that's what I would say about supplementation. Get healthy first.
0: Yeah. And it- <laughs> I think you're spot on that a lot of people are just looking for a quick fix because they've been sold this idea that they need more testosterone or their testosterone is low. And this idea is rampant in a lot of online forums where you see men talking about how do I raise my testosterone? And actually, one of the popular ideas that you hear on a lot of these forums is that if you abstain from masturbation, that you can raise your testosterone.
1: (laughs) That's an ancient um, idea. I can't believe it's still hanging around.
0: Yes, well tell us the truth there because you know this is actually one of the topics that you know people search for that brings them to my website most frequently because a lot of people are interested in this. So, what's your take? Can can abstaining from masturbation boost your testosterone? I
1: have never seen evidence to support that, but I have to admit that I haven't investigated the claim thoroughly. So, I can't say there isn't any evidence to support it. It doesn't make sense to me. For a number of reasons, because if you are say that is is a signal to your body um, that you're having a lot of sexual partners somehow, I I don't. There's just no reason why that I can't see logically why that should cause a reduction in testosterone. I'm not sure. Also, testosterone promotes sperm production, so I think the signal would be you've got to produce even more, not less. It just logically doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what the mechanism would be, and I haven't seen the evidence that supports it. If, if you have a study that shows that that works that, or that masturbation inhibits testosterone, that would be interesting.
0: There's only a very small set of studies that have looked at this and based on tiny samples. And there's there is one. I, I feel like off the top of my head, the sample was about ten men that they looked at. They found that men who abstained from masturbation for a week or so, that there was this peak or rise in testosterone for them after seven days or something like that. And a lot of people on these forums will point to that study, but that study has been thoroughly criticized for its very small sample size and drawing very sweeping claims based on something that hasn't really been replicated. So, and you,
1: Yeah, you, you have to imagine that if that were a robust finding, that it would have been replicated and that the reason we probably don't see any replications is because they failed and people decided to put it in their file drawer.
0: Well, and then there are also some studies that show the opposite effect. So again, it's just one of those areas where right. uh, you know, people who make the very big, bold claims, it's like, no, let's look at all the evidence exactly. and see that uh, there, there's not a very clear, simple, easy takeaway from this. So, another topic I wanted to briefly address that you talk about in your book is the link between testosterone and sexual orientation, right? A topic that I've spent a lot of time researching is you know, what is the origin of sexual orientation? Why do different orientations exist? And I've read the literature looking at genetic factors, at hormonal factors, at number of older brothers that a man has, like there, there's all kinds of theories that have been proposed here. And so I'm curious as to what your take on this is and and whether testosterone might play some role in the development of sexual orientation.
1: Yeah, I love this topic. I think it is absolutely fascinating. And I have some evidence and I have a lot of speculation based on what I know, as I'm guessing you do. And so number one is there is no relationship whatsoever between adult levels of testosterone and sexual orientation in males or females. What seems to be really important is prenatal exposure to androgens. And here, there is a relationship between sexual orientation and prenatal exposure to androgens in women. So while this isn't the most robust evidence in the world, the evidence that we do have points in this direction, which is there's different ways to get at prenatal exposure to androgens. One way is to look at girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia who have a disorder of the adrenal gland that causes the overproduction of androgens in utero. And in places where there's adequate medical care, this is treated at birth. So the testosterone levels are normalized from birth on. And what's interesting is that these girls differ from girls who have typical androgen levels, which are extremely low, in these systematic ways. So they seem to be masculinized in their behavior. They have, I mean, they definitely are masculinized in their behavior as kids. They have higher rates of rough and tumble play, want to play with boys more than other girls. And then in adulthood, they're more likely to be lesbians. They're more likely to want to enter enter male typical professions. So there, there's some evidence that testosterone exposure, at least in girls, is related to becoming a lesbian as an adult. Now, there is no such evidence in men. And the way that I look at this is to think about what the purpose of sex differences, sort of high androgen levels in the fetus is. And it's the most important thing is to masculinize sexual behavior. So you can, if you look at rats a male rat must be exposed to male typical levels of androgens to ha- basically have sex like a male which means mount pursue and mount the female so rats are great because females have to get into this lordosis position where they arch their backs males have to pursue the females and mount them okay so you can create you know gay rats by messing around manipulating the androgen environment in utero so What's interesting about gay men, from my point of view, and a lot of other people uh, see it this way also, is that their sexual nature, See, and you know, again, you can weigh in here, the sexual nature to me is just masculine. It's just men. It's just a male sexual nature that is able to be expressed a little bit more freely because they're having sex with other men who want something very similar, not something, you know, as different as what a woman would want. So the whole idea that gay men are feminized, well, if you look at this sexuality, there's no evidence that that is feminized whatsoever. It's hundred percent masculine. So to me, that means that the androgen exposure in utero should also be hundred percent masculine. Again, you know, I'm somebody who's in favor of a lot of, uh, evidence to, but I, I like this finding for some reason that there's some evidence that gay men have larger penises than straight men, and that is a function of testosterone in utero and potentially even in the three months after birth. So if anything, it sort of seems like, wait a minute, maybe there's some hyper-masculinity happening. Now, mm-hmm. there is in some men who grew up to be gay in childhood, they had gender atypical behavior, which was more, you know, could be considered more feminized, where there's an aversion to rough and tumble play. And this is not something that's socially induced. Like, very few little boys are encouraged by their dads to go play with, you know, wear dresses and go play with girls. In fact, they try to, their peers try to bully them out of it. So we do see that there is some, you know, reduced, so increased sort of gender atypical behavior in childhood, and then In adulthood, there's a higher likelihood of entering more female typical professions. So in that sense, there's, you know, I don't even want to call it feminization exactly, but there's something that is different there that isn't totally typical of straight men. So that could have something to do with testosterone in utero that we're just not picking up. Maybe there's something different about the timing. Maybe there's some epigenetic effects where some genes are expressed differently. So it's not that there are gene differences, but it's differences in the way genes are expressed that could be important. But to me, sexual orientation, and this is my huge speculation, isn't sort of like a nugget you have in your brain that says you're going to be attracted to this sex or that sex as an adult. It's more a dispositional thing where you don't... It's you're sort of attracted to to your compliment. And if you have certain traits that maybe make you feel one way, like you're going to be attracted to something more masculine and that's going to change your socialization, which is going to change your patterns of sexual attraction. I think it's complicated. And it's like also our binary society and and gendered society plays a big role in that. Because a lot of non-human animals engage in high levels of sexual behavior, but we have this thing where you kind of have to pick a box, right? And But yeah, it seems to be important potentially in females. We don't know what's going on in males. There may be a role of testosterone, but there are reasons to think that there isn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I would add to that is I've seen some research to to support this idea is that Maybe we're not seeing an effect because maybe there are different types or kinds of homosexuality, right? So a lot of people just want to lump everything into one box, and maybe there's a gender conforming kind of homosexuality and a gender non-conforming kind, and maybe they have different hormonal roots or genetic roots or or something else there.
1: Sorry, can I just ask you one thing? Do you know Matthew McIntyre?
0: Uh, not personally, no.
1: So he he was a grad student at Harvard when I was there. He happens to be gay himself, but he looked into that exact question. He looked at two D forty and what he called bottoms and tops, and that was whole yes. his whole view of this. And the same thing in lesbians, you know. I don't want to use the terms, but because um, I, I don't want to say the wrong terms, but they're you have the same sort of roles, right? Where you want your complement, and so we might not see the hormonal same hormonal thing happening, in just like gay men and lesbians, of course, it may be totally different within that community.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, the one study I'm thinking of was looking at genetic factors. I, I don't recall if it was looking at finger length ratios or not, but it essentially supported this idea that there might be different genetic pathways to different types or, or kinds of homosexuality, if you want to think of it that way. And so essentially, you know, that challenges a lot of popular ideas about the origins of sexual orientation. Like it's not as simple as there's just a gay gene, right? right. You know, that's a very oversimplified way of looking at this. And so maybe when we're doing research to try and look at, well, what are the roots here? Maybe we can't just look at just homosexuality is one singular category. Maybe we need to break it down and look at, through different lenses. So I I think there's a lot more work to be done. And I think that might help to explain why there's so much inconsistency in the findings in this area. And, yeah. you know, every time we think we've figured something out, you know, and a study comes out that shows something different. So it's hard to know what to make of that whole literature.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's really important to think about the variation within these groups. And yeah, I agree. And we don't, we don't know what's going on, but a lot of people want to find the gay gene. Um, and that's also, it's interesting, but it's kind of sad that people feel, I think that we must find that to gain, you know, increase acceptance for what of course should be, it should not be relevant, what the cause is, but I get it. I get why people are motivated to do that.
0: Yeah. So we're running short on time. I just have one other quick question for you, which is why people should read your book, right? So how can a more scientifically informed understanding of testosterone help people to better understand themselves or their partners, others that they know? Could it be helpful in addressing certain societal problems with conflict and aggression? So what can readers take away from your book?
1: Yeah, there's two things. So one... First of all, it's satisfying because understanding testosterone in the way that we've been talking about it, right, I think is so satisfying when you have clear, powerful explanations for patterns of behavior that you see but don't really understand and that are kind of confusing or overwhelming or you know, but there's so much great science that we can access. And I try to write the book in a way that is full of stories. It's full of my own anecdotes and how learning about testosterone and science helped me personally. So first of all, I think it's exciting and satisfying to have, you know, clear explanations for a lot of really interesting behaviors that we all care about. And I would say that the second thing is, so I, I'm married to a man and he's very different from me. And I've had you know, lots of, I got married later in life. So I had a fair number of experiences with men before that. I have obviously lots of relationships with men. And yeah, I don't, uh, I'm dying. I would love to just take a lot of testosterone and know what that is like for a little bit to live as a man. And I think part of the book is me really trying to get into, Male behavior or male psychology through the lens of evolution and testosterone and what ultimately has happened and I want to get how it played out in my relationship is that my compassion for even bad behavior I have to say increased not for the behavior but for the some of the struggles that I feel that men face in feeling misunderstood in trying to deal with what is sometimes a very can feel like an overwhelming sexual need sometimes, especially for young men going through puberty. I started to feel, instead of just angry and annoyed and judgmental, I tried to understand what the challenges that men might be facing are, and then maybe open up a discussion a little bit that has a little bit more compassion. And that's hard when you feel victimized and annoyed or sexually assaulted or whatever it is but i think it's always helpful to try to understand you know before judging and i think this really in fact it did help my own relationship with my husband who's who i was i really was nudging him a lot to get in touch with his emotions and his talk about his feelings and what's going on and where are his feelings blah blah, blah. but understanding this hormone especially how it changes people in their transgender transitions and stuff did help me whether or not this is the explanation for him He's British. There's another explanation, um, but it helped me just accept who he is more because I had an explanation for it. it. Didn't mean he was like dropped on his head when he was little. It means maybe he's just a, a British guy who's awesome, who I was attracted to partly because I'm so emotional and he's very steady and stable. And it helped our relationship. I think it helped him f- feel more accepted. So there were these, like, even though you know, tangible differences in my own life and my own relationships.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your book?
1: Sure. So I just a couple of weeks ago created com C-A-R-O-L-E-H-O-O-V-E-N. And they can, there's a link to the book there. I'm also on Twitter at Hoovlet, H-O-O-V-L-E-T. And they can get the book on Amazon or, you know, wherever they go to get books. Yeah.
0: Yes. Anywhere books are sold. Well... Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of the podcast. You can visit my website, sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want and Carol's book T: The Story of Testosterone. Thanks again for listening until next time.